because I, you know, I, as a pilot, as a person who um, has been designing the drone control stations for a long time and had a design for man-machine interface, uh, everything that I thought was going to come true has come true. And I'm Rohan, and welcome back to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories of how they got to where they are today. Hi, everyone. Today we had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Missy Cummings. Dr. Cummings is a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Duke, and she's also one of the Navy's first female fighter pilots. Dr. Cummings is a director of Duke's Humans in Autonomy Laboratory. Some of her research interests include human supervisory control, explainable artificial intelligence, and um, system collaboration between humans and autonomous systems. She's also sort of involved with policy as well. She's a member of the Defense Innovation Advisory Board, so I think she has a pretty unique take on, you know, both the academic sphere as well as the policies here and sort of just interacting with uh, leaders in the industry as well as leaders in um, research. Yeah, I completely agree. I, it was very refreshing to hear her takes and opinions on a, a variety of different issues and how her experience has influenced and played into uh, her worldview. Yeah, you know, one thing that struck me as well is that she's very sort of frank uh, and sort of candid with what she says, and it sort of uh, called for a really open and interesting conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, this is definitely one of our most interesting episodes, I'd say, so far. So without further ado, Dr. Cummings, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We're really, really excited to hear about your story. So for anyone who doesn't know, and we'll definitely get into this a lot more later in the podcast, but Dr. Cummings was one of the first um, female fighter pilots in the Navy. So we wanted to kind of get an idea of growing up when, when did you kind of decide this was something you wanted to do and, and how did you get the idea in your head that you wanted to be a fighter pilot? Well, I wanted to be a fighter pilot because I'd been around planes all my life. My dad was in the military. He was, he fixed radios on aircraft in the Navy. And so being around airplanes was very natural to me. So I don't think it's very hard. It's not a long stretch to say if I was around planes my whole life, why wouldn't I be a pilot? Uh, and I also think, you know, I'm not immune to the media and hype. Uh, the movie Top Gun came out in 1986, which was crazy popular. And I decided that, you know, of course, who wouldn't want to do that? I, it is still hard for me to believe that girls, for the most part, women don't want to be pilots, much less fighter pilots, uh, which I still think is probably true. But in my world, it, it just seems crazy that you wouldn't want to be a fighter pilot. Right, right. Yeah, I guess, you know, following up directly on that, what inspired you to attend the Naval Academy compared to sort of the other military academies? Uh, well, I actually applied to both the Air Force and Naval Academy, and I got into both. There was no way I was going to apply to West Point because my dad would have killed me. Uh, and it's funny because um, he told me to take the Air Force appointment. And I ended up taking the Navy one instead. And I, I can't, you know, when I look back, I think maybe, maybe he was right. You know, I mean, it was a rough time in the Navy. And the Navy does have a lot of traditions and a lot of older traditions that they have to get beyond. And, and I do think women have had an easier path in the Air Force. But now that I have a teenager, I see myself that, you know, it is probably true defiance. And um, whatever he says, I was going to do the opposite of. So it, it's actually that experience has made me rethink what it means to be a parent, like, and how to, you know, how to guide my daughter. Sure. Would you recommend joining the military to a current high school or a college student? Well, if I was, if somebody asked me, you know, if they, male or female, if all they ever dream about is being a pilot, I would tell them yes. I would probably tell them to go to the Air Force instead of the Navy if, if piloting was all they ever dreamed about. I do think there's been the rise of the drone piloting force inside the Air Force, which is um, much more established than in the Navy. And I do think that um, UAV and manned aerial vehicle piloting is 
is the future. It's the future for not just the military, but it's going to be the future for commercial aviation too. So I definitely think going into the Air Force to get uh, your UAV or drone pilot license is super, would be a great experience. Uh, you know, if you really want to go to sea, uh, I think that the Navy's for you. I'm not sure how many people really, you know, that's all they ever think about. But if that's what you think about, I think you should do it. Uh, I do think the military is a different, it's a different place. It's a professional force if you go in as, as an officer with a college degree. I do think there are a lot, there's a huge need for people with cybersecurity backgrounds. And if you go through the military and you do some kind of cybersecurity path, you're going to have access to a job that no one else in the world has. So, you know, recently we've been hacked terribly by Russia, right? So we definitely need more people with those kinds of skills going into the military. So yes, if you think, you know, the military paid for my college and I think that's important. So there is an avenue to get your college paid for. And I think that the payback for that going in and protecting this country against hacking from Russia and China is probably a very fulfilling career and a great step. You know, you could, you don't only have to do five, six years in the military and then you transition to something else. So yeah, I think, I think that's a good path for a lot of people. Yeah, that's really interesting. So going back to your story, um, I can imagine that when you were getting started, there were quite a few obstacles and prejudices that you had to overcome. And even today, I'm sure for women joining the military, could you speak to those experiences? And I guess, what was it like being a woman in such a male dominated setting? Oh, yeah. You know, um, hashtag me too has nothing on what was going on in the 1990s in the military. And it's no secret that I left being a fighter pilot because of the derision and the harassment and the abuse that I suffered. Uh, the men were very, 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 very underscore, very unhappy that women were there flying fighters alongside them. And there's a lot of social reasons for that. And uh, I, I think things have only gotten marginally better for women who are fighter pilots. Uh, the good news is, is that that, that problem's going to go away because drones are going to take uh, the jobs away from fighter pilots. So, you know, that's actually technology is one solution to a social problem, a social integration problem. But yeah, I did suffer terribly and uh, I was picked on. I was uh, ridiculed. I wasn't spoken to. And in fact, that's actually, in the end, that was what ended up being the biggest problem is really no one, no one in my um, squadron would speak to me. I was just treated as some like some kind of pariah. And that gets very lonely. Yeah. And it's, um, in fact, I'd rather be picked on verbally than not being talked to at all. And, and that included even in the air, I would be ignored in the air. And in the end, I decided, wow. yeah, it was, it was bad enough that I, it was unsafe. It was yeah. unsafe. And the guys were playing tricks on my flight gear. They would steal my flight gear. They would, I would come in my flight gear would, you know, would have rips in places that it shouldn't have rips in. And, you know, people were sabotaging me, um, overtly and covertly. And at that point, I just said, look, this has got to, this has got to stop. It's, and it's, I'm not being very productive here. The guys are so angry that I'm here. They're willing to go to great lengths and I'm, I'm ready to move on to something more positive. And at that point in time, that's when I decided to go back to school and work on my PhD because at the, while I had been flying fighters, you know, on average, one person I knew or knew of was killed for the three years that I did that, about one person died a month. And that's a lot of people. Um, and it was always error, um, pilot error. And it was clear to me that the plane really, the plane's automation had exceeded human capabilities. And so I made that my focus going back to graduate school. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm very lucky that I think that my inspiration and my life experience helped propel me through my PhD program and even in my career today. And not everyone has that, that those experiences that they can draw upon. Oh yeah, we really we have several questions lined up for you in terms of asking about that. But before before we get to that, and I think you sort of alluded to this in your answer. Did your experience in terms of how you were treated improve at all? Or you know, it sounds like what you're saying is um, even now it's sort of it's marginally improved even till now. So it sounds from your answer that it didn't really. But 
you know, did you, did you see any changes and how did you, I guess, how did you adapt as well on your, your end? Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you were like there for, for a couple of days. You were there for several years, I guess. How are you, how did you learn how to live with that kind of thing? Well, I mean, you know, you learn how to, you just go about your job and you try to do the job the best you can. I'm not, I, I don't think I handled it as well as I could have. You know, I very much, you know, I wanted to stick it back in their faces, uh, you know, because I didn't appreciate the way that they were treating me and, so, you know, I egg them on. You know, I would, I would, you know, when I shot one of them down, I would smirk about it, you know, with simulated <laughs> shot, I'd shoot them down. You know, I mean, that's actually part of the problem of being a fighter pilot. You need a swagger. You need to be arrogant. You need to be kind of a jerk. And I was. And, um, and I didn't, I, that was actually the problem is that the women who did the best at that time, and, and no one did great, by the way, all the women eventually left in that first wave. But we, um, you know the the women the women who did better than me were quiet and didn't say anything as opposed to me trying to poke back at them and um there was this one time where they tried to force me to wear a hooters outfit at the golf tournament that our squadron was having Wow. Instead of like having me play in the golf tournament they wanted oh me gosh. to to drive the beer cart in a hooters outfit um, and I and I threw the outfit back in their faces. I'm like, you know, hell no, that's not happening. And uh, um, and then I and they tried to get another woman to do it, and I just kind of stepped in and said, no, no one, no girl is wearing a Hooters outfit. And so uh, that you know, <laughs> I drew a line in the sand, and they didn't appreciate that I drew a line in the sand, and that kind of made me a marked man, as it were. Um, once I did that, and so. I'm not saying I shouldn't have done it. it it's a, it was a hard place to be, but uh, maybe I didn't have to be as in their face about it. Uh, but it sounds like you're being very reasonable. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it does sound like you know that is a hard place. Like, what do you do with that kind of thing? And I think that 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 has those things have gone away. Those you know overt sexual harassment kinds of things. But I think we still live in a covert society where you know I think. One of the most telling things that someone ever said to me is one of the flight instructors said to me once after he'd had a couple of drinks, so he's, you know, looser tongue. He said, you know, if you can do what I can do and you can drop bombs and you're as good of a fighter pilot as I am, then what does that make me? And then I think that really made me understand in the moment because I think that's a huge problem, not just for the military, but I'll tell you where else it's a big problem right now, um, and that's Silicon Valley and the computer science world. So I think we see a lot of the fighter pilot machismo and hubris. Um, I think it's very much in spades, entrenched in Silicon Valley. And this is why we still see, you know, the, the environment that is most like the environment that that I lived in 25 years ago is in Silicon Valley today. And I find wow. it shocking that, and this is one of the reasons is you see a lot of women leave Silicon Valley and computer science-based companies because they don't want to have to deal with that. And there's a, a huge vacuum of leadership of men who are willing to stand up and not tolerate that kind of behavior. So I wish that we could say it no longer exists in the world today. I think, indeed, I actually think the military's made improvements that Silicon Valley could take lessons from. But I think that we need to recognize that, you know, this sense of if if girls can do it, if you run like a girl, for example, that's a that's a good expression. Like, so why is that a bad thing, right? So why do we say it in that way? And and I still hear this: you code like a girl. Girls can't code like men can code, you know. And and I do think that we need to take a long, hard look at the Silicon Valley and computer science culture. Um, at universities, including Duke, UNC, all the rest of them, and say, like, what are the kind of attitudes that, that are so pervasive that we still are having problems with this in today's current professional world? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in terms of sort of dealing with how people treated you in the military, how has that helped you deal with that, your involvement with tech? How have, has that helped, you know, your prior experience dealing with those situations? Has that helped um, sort of after you stopped, you know, serving? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, I mean, I recognize 
it allows me to recognize what's going on in Silicon Valley and to be able to draw the parallels. Personally, uh, I think I've learned a lot about how to maybe attack these problems a little less um, arrogantly, like instead of running around poking people in the eyes like I did when I was younger, I'm trying to be more political about it, although I'm sure there are so many people at their other faculty listening, they're rolling their eyes or like, she is not, she's not nice, she pokes me in the eye all the time. Uh, and I do want to tell everybody, look, I'm a much nicer person than I was 25 years ago when I attacked problems, but I'm still going to attack problems, and I'm still going to call out problems when I see problems. You know, there have been problems at Duke where, where I feel like women, either as students or faculty, have gotten the short end of the stick. And what people don't like is when you expose the reality and indeed, I think this is one of the problems that, you know, kind of globally or, or at least nationally in the time that we're in is that, you know, people don't like it when you hold up a mirror and show what's really happening and show it without the rose-colored glasses. And I think there's been serious leadership failures at, you know, at the university, at the national level, uh, across the military. Like, when you hold up that mirror, the answer is not to try to mitigate it or bury it or gloss over it. You really just need to address these issues and accept the reality for what it is. Unfortunately, that's really not a very popular stance right now. We'll see. Uh, but, uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that I'm trying not to alienate everyone where I see problems crop up. So um, I'm only alienating 50% of people today as opposed to 100% of people today that I alienated 25 years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, that sounds like... It, those situations just sound really tough, and it, it, seems like, it seems like you probably have a more active approach than most, which um, is something to admire. So, you know, back when you were a fighter pilot, on top of, you know, all this kind of nonsense you were dealing with. I mean, what was your day-to-day like? I, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners do have no idea what being a fighter pilot like entails on a day-to-day. So, you know, I'm Becky and I are also like extremely curious. Well, uh, y- you know, there's on the day-to-day basis, you are, you know, if you're not in wartime, you're training, right? <gasps> so you would be training, maybe flying simulators, uh, working on tactics, working on flight planning, working on mission planning, uh, working out. There's a lot of working out going on. Uh, and I'm still very much uh, into the, you know, I, I, I still very much like to exercise every day. And this is something that uh, the military instilled in me. And it's funny because exercise when you're a fighter pilot, you know, you've got to have, you've got to be in really good physical shape to withstand all the harshness that you put your body through. But it's also a stress reduction. When I moved over to the academic world, the working out also helps with stress reduction. But every single great idea I've ever had as an academic came to me while I was exercising. And so I, th- I think that exercising for me is a form of meditation and it's a way that I can kind of clear my brain. And literally ideas will just pop into my head. Good, good idea. And there it is. And I write a proposal and I raise money or I get excited. And I, you know, so in fact, I have awesome. a, yeah, I have a whole list of great ideas that I haven't been able to attack yet. So, um, you know, one of the, one of the lessons I think to learn is like, you don't have to be a maniac in the gym. It can just be going out for a long walk. But moving your body through space, I think, is very good, not just for your stress levels, but also for your um, just clearing your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. (laughs) Um, So I want to touch on something you spoke about a few minutes ago. So during your time as a fighter pilot, you know, you said you were alarm, alarmed by the high crash rate, and you know, you said there was there's one person you know you knew a month that would that would die from a crash. And I guess when you moved into the academic world, it seemed like you were you were seeking to solve this problem. What made you think that that was something you could do? Like, I'm sure there have been thousands of pilots that have gone before you and kind of saw this problem and said, okay, it's a thing that exists. But I guess you kind of took this step further and said, I can kind of solve this problem. Well, the, two things happened. Uh, the It was clear to me as my time in a fighter pilot, you know, I could see the rise of technology and automated technology and understanding that there were problems. And then while I was working on my PhD, it became clear to me that that, is, that was an area 
that you could actually formally study this idea of man-machine interaction. So when I was in my undergraduate days, no such degrees existed in 1988 uh, when I graduated from college. But now, you know, in the year 1999, uh, when I was looking around for PhD programs, it became clear to me that that was something you could study. And I jumped into it, you know, I, I leapt into it, right? Because I understood probably better. And this is actually for good or for bad. I'm sure my, my peers often, I think it's a love hate relationship. They love me, but they also are a little jealous, <laughs> jealous that, you know, like, I mean, I have a great backstory. Uh, and like, you know, I mean, it's not fair to them. Like, they're like, okay, I really study hard and I work hard and I study, I do research and I write all these papers. And here comes this flashy former fighter pilot. And she kind of dives in and steals all the glory. And, you know, that's just the way it is. That's what fighter pilots do. (laughs) Rowan and I were actually just talking about that before. We were like, I wonder what her PhD application looked like. How do you say no to that kind of experience? Yeah, it turns out the person who adjudicated my uh, application to UVA was a former astronaut. So... You know, I totally, I totally had it go. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's totally not fair for everybody else. It's like going to a, going to a knife fight with a spoon, and you know, and I've got a bazooka. You know, like it's just, it's, a, it's, it's not going to come out in your favor. But you know, I mean, that's the reality of of like that's one of the things I tell my own students is it's it's rare that I think really people should go from their undergraduate, master's, PhD. I think that. For most people, not everyone, there are a few special cases, but for most people, I think going out and getting some lived experience and reality check is is truly important for most people. The rare exceptions are these unbelievably gifted people who are just brilliant and they need to stay in their own world. Um, you know, so it's okay. It's okay if you don't have a lived experience. Wow, I really appreciate your candor on that. Um, that self awareness about how other people perceive your story and. You're saying that it's unfair, but I think it seems if you you had to go through all of that, um, you definitely deserve to reap the benefits of those experiences and how that shaped your story. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's, it's, you know, and it is what it is, but I think that if more people would have more lived experiences, then they could channel what they've seen in the real world to help motivate them for what's going on later. You know, I, most people I know that have had a life before they become a professor, you know, I think it's easier for them because they, they do have these experiences to draw upon. And also, like, you know, on any bad day, and, you know, I mean, my life is not perfect, and I have bad days, and I have days where, you know, there are things in academia that make me so mad, so mad, that you know, my eyes roll back in my head. But my worst day uh, in academia doesn't even come close to the worst day, you know, when people die flying aircraft, right? Right. So there's this, there's this huge difference uh, of what a worst day looks like. So I... And again, but I think that's true for everyone in life. Um, you know, if you if you can look back at another experience and say, "Oh, I, I could tell you how bad it gets," and and you know, this is nothing compared to that other thing, I, I think that's very helpful in life. Yeah, of course. I, I'm curious though. So you 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 so you did your, did your PhD and then you chose to stay in academia as a professor. What what kept you in the academia sphere versus going out into industry? after you uh, got your PhD? I think that's a great question. I really um, uh, I really wanted to continue to do research. That was clear to me. You know, I had a lot of ideas and I have a, a lot of... And I, at the time, and so I, um, I finished up my PhD and I was finishing up in 2003 and drones were, were just starting their rise and I knew it. Um, because I'd actually um, tested some uh, while I was a pilot in the Navy. And so I I saw the fact that drones were about to become a thing. So I wanted to make them my thing. Uh, Because as a baby academic, you need to really be known for one thing. Uh, And that's how, because you become an expert in that thing. And then that's, you know, and, and at that time, MIT was looking for, uh, baby professors, um, basically female baby professors, because they were caught abusing women, 
And um, they, in uh, fact, there was this huge mandate that MIT had to hire a bunch of female professors because they were caught discriminating so badly. So I was wow, kind of wow. vacuumed up in this um, women need to be hired at MIT. So timing, you know, timing was amazing. And, uh, and then I went to MIT and, you know, I just, I got in that knife fight. That's another knife fight, you know, um, that I had to, to jump into. Um, With your bazooka? Uh, I, I eventually got a bazooka, right? I mean, because that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's a, life is a game. Everything is a game. There's a set of rules and you've got to figure out what, what the rules are and how to play the game and how to win at that game. So I figured it out eventually, and um, getting tenure at MIT is um, basically only a third of people who start as a baby professor get tenure. So I went into the ad- went into that thinking I'm not going to get tenure, uh, but I'm going to make the most of every moment that I have. And then because I was on the on that curl of that drone wave, and things just things picked up speed, and things really picked up speed after. Uh, I had some, they were just master's students uh, that we did this kind of a side project of, we were the first people to connect flying a drone with an iPhone, with a smartphone. Yeah, and that went just viral. It was like when we did this, uh, people were crazy that we were um, able to do this. And that eventually landed me on the Colbert Report, which you know then became Stephen Colbert's Tonight Show. And then uh, it was on um, The Daily Show. That's when Trevor Noah, uh, not Trevor Noah, but uh, John Stewart was on. So that kind of like when you start accelerating at that speed and then you're on yeah. um, TV in that way, uh, then things just really just went bananas, and um, which was great. And then I got tenure uh, because, and then people really recognized it was yeah. it, it was hard. I mean, there was a there was a place in there where my career looked a little shaky at MIT, and that is because people at MIT who these you know who world experts thought that drones were just toys and silly know nothings, and um, and that my work with man machine interface was not important at all, and so. Uh, you know, it, it was, you know, I looked to the public and the public's embrace really, I think, helped turn attitudes around at MIT for them to understand that drones are not just toy technologies. These are real things okay. with real applications and the man-machine interface is truly critical, both in the military and in the commercial world. So, you know, it's it's a rags-to-riches story at MIT. Uh <laughs> Uh, it could have gone the other way easily, but you know the good news is is that uh, I think that well, and certainly today we look around and and indeed one of the reasons I got tenure and many awards later is because people realize that I played a pivotal role in moving the industry forward and helping legitimize the industry. So. You know, I don't really know how to tell people, uh, look, make sure you're on the cutting edge of whatever it is, the technology that's just about to happen. Uh, you know, I don't know how to tell people that. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things that when you're in the moment, you don't really, you know, I did see it. And because I was older and that's actually why having that lived experience was so important, because I think right. I understood uh, more quickly than other people, what was about to happen, and that was true. Then, what happened? I was not crazy. I, well, I mean, once once Jeff Bezos said uh, we're going to start Prime Air, uh, uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, it's it's they've commercialized all the work that I've done in drones. I need to go find something else to be really on the cutting edge of. And at that time, this was in the early 2000s, no, I'm sorry, late 2000s, that I knew that um, because I'd been working on the DARPA Urba Grand Challenge team at MIT, I knew what was about to happen with the, the um, unmanned vehicles on the ground, i.e. driverless cars. So I jumped into that space early. And then I, and then I you know, by this time I had all these contacts and I started warning people about what was about to happen with the driverless car um, debate. And sure enough, that that exploded. And I was on the fronting edge of that wave, you know, coming through. So it's um, it's been an interesting ride. I don't know, Act 3, I don't know what Act 3 is. Uh, I, I haven't really identified any really uh, cutting-edge things to be on the, the curling edge of right now. I'm still really busy with um, the driverless cars and drones because drones, have, drones are still... Um, up and coming, 
And there, there are larger systemic problems like air traffic control and other more infrastructure areas that I'm related um, right, to right, that right. I'm doing work in. Yeah, so I'm curious because, you know, obviously Becky and I have grown up in an age where we never, like, I don't know, an iPhone, the age before the iPhone, see, you know, I can hardly remember that. But I guess a pair of questions. When you were at MIT, what sorts of things did you predict or, um, you know, concerning man-machine interfaces and the things you're sort of, you were sort of working on, what sort of things did you anticipate happening that haven't turned out to be true? And on the flip side, what sorts of things did you not anticipate at all and that have actually turned out to sort of be a big part of the technology and how it's developed today? Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a great question because I, you know, I, as a pilot, as a person who um, has been designing the drone control stations for a long time and had a design for man-machine interface, uh, everything that I thought was going to come true has come true. I would say the only, the only kind of gotcha for myself is the the slowness of the adaptation of understanding that humans should not directly control uh, the axes of flight. That has been a little bit slower than, you know, and what that means is humans should not fly drones like airplanes are flown, meaning you should not have rate control over how you maneuver the aircraft. Because when you give rate and or acceleration control to humans, it sets up pilot-induced oscillations. And so what you need is a more supervisory control where people are just controlling the position uh, instead of actually doing anything with the flight surfaces. That has been a bit slower to come around. Uh, not surprisingly, I have a patent in that. Um, it, it is slowly happening, but because, and that's because people are crashing. And so the Air Force is the one who is, the Air Force and the Army um, are trying to make changes uh, because they, they're starting to recognize, and it's a huge cost for them. It's going to be the reason that more and more drones are, you know, this will become true for more commercial applications of drones. It's coming true, right? I mean, I send, I send students and former postdocs to work at Zipline. And I work, you know, I work with them to start thinking about, you know, what's the right way to control these systems to make sure that they don't crash. So that adaptation, I mean, it's happening, but it's just much slower than I thought it was going to be. And the reason is because people want to be in control. And so I'm here to tell them that you shouldn't be in control, but they want to fly at you know, the, And there's this coolness <laughs> yeah, yeah. factor, right? And I think this is a big problem because it's also true in, in driverless cars. You know, just because you yeah. think it's fun and you want to do it doesn't mean you should be able to do it. And right. so I think that fighting the psychology, and, and that's what I do. I'm, I'm really kind of a tech therapist. I find myself doing more... <laughs> tech therapy um, than I really want to. Um, you That's know, so awesome. Yeah, no, you really shouldn't have. You can't. You should not have um, autopilot <laughs> and you should not. Uh, you should not have autopilot uh, in a car, but you should have it in the air. That's really what I'm trying to, to, to do in my life. Wow, that's that's really cool. <laughs> I definitely want to dive into industry and, and all of that a little more later. But before we get into that, I, I want to kind of get to know more about the research you do now and what your day-to-day looks like as a professor and researcher. The research that I do now is still very much in these areas. I've moved on from, uh, instead of designing control stations and whatnot for drones, now we're actually looking at how to train people better, uh, how to make sure that they become uh, with as little training as possible, become experts as quickly as possible. So we're trying to okay. look at how people can get up on the learning curve faster so that people don't have to spend so much time training. And then we also look at how can you adapt the systems themselves? What kind of safety devices can you put on the systems to make sure that people don't crash? So that we, so we still do a lot of, in fact, we just finished a five-year longitudinal study of drone flying in my lab. And you know, we had, the research students love this project because they got to learn how to fly drones. And, um, and we also have another fun project that we're just finishing up now. We also moved on into the evil that drones can do. So there have been a lot of problems with drones 
we call them interloping drones, spying on people that they shouldn't be spying on, trying to watch concerts uh, without paying, so they'll try to put them in a concert, uh, and then dropping contraband into prisons. So it turns out that, that, you know, this is very typical, that once you put in a technology, people find ways to do nefarious things with them. And so we've developed a system, an acoustic system, to detect them, and they and the, and the system calls you on your phone when it, it detects that there's a drone in your area, right? And so you, and this idea is how to develop low cost detection systems. You know, the military has very high cost radar based uh, drone detection systems. It's arguable how effective they are, and indeed, the military is still really struggling with this. But we are really focused on not military but civilian applications because we see rogue drones everywhere. There are a lot of North Carolina prisons and indeed across the country. Prisons are really struggling with the problems of dropping contraband by drone into prison yards, which is very dangerous. Uh, but also we're working with the Cocoa Booth Amphitheater and most recently the town of Cary. They, they just opened up a new disc golf course and they're having a huge problem with people wanting to fly drones over the disc golf course. And, you know, if it's just, if it's, yeah, if it's just you out there, maybe it's not so dangerous. But I have to tell you, I went and checked it out. It's a mob scene. I had no idea so many people like to play disc golf, which I also like to play disc golf. And so <laughs> this, this new course is both great and packed. And it is a true having people fly drones, and they're typically idiots about how they fly. You know, it does become a safety risk, and, and people have been hurt. And so these kinds of low cost systems can at least allow the prison wardens or the city managers to know when they have people flying around when they shouldn't be. So I've, I've heard the, the autonomous vehicle industry described as a backwards J-curve, where at first we, you know, input a lot of time and resources into developing these technologies. And then at some point, like we cross this threshold, then we see this huge growth, growth and profit, right? Like to this point, there is really no like profitable autonomous vehicle on the market, really. Um, where do you think we are on this curve? And and how long, like, till to, to you think, like, Waymo or TRI or Tesla um, produces something that's, like, ubiquitous and wildly profit, profitable? Uh, not in my professional lifetime, if we're talking about, <laughs> about cars. Uh, I think drones are also going to struggle for profitability until they become large aircraft size, meaning I think all cargo aircraft should be drones today. And when that happens, that will be very profitable. Uh, driverless cars are a whole different situation. Everyone should know they can go to my website. Um, I've got a whole publications list, and you can read all the things that I'm saying about that, and it really spells it out in much more detail. But there's a serious perception problem where the sensors that perceive the world, that try to build the world model, cannot build the world model with rich enough detail and respond quickly enough to um, what's going on around it. So there's, there are tech problems here that are still unsolved. And indeed, this is why, you know, if you actually go back, and other researchers have tracked this, I mean, you know, for the last six years, people have been promising that next year, self-driving cars are going to be ubiquitous. And right. it just yeah. hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened. I, I would love to tell you that I hate to be an I told you so, but I love being an I told you so, right? Because I keep telling people like, like, look, I'm an expert in this. I've been doing this. I'm telling you it's not going to happen. And, and I tell people why. And it's hilarious because I get asked all the time as a, to do private consulting where I go in and review technologies. And people pay me to say, give a thumbs up or thumbs down for a upcoming technology, I have a, a 100% hit rate, meaning, you know, every what, whatever I say for that technology is going to be true. And um, in every single case, those companies ignored my, that paid for my advice, ignored my advice and did what they wanted anyway. And every single one of those companies lost money. And wow. so, yeah, it is kind wow. of amazing. Like, but again, it goes back to that advice. I, like people will in, end up doing what they want to do. And I have to tell people right now in terms of the craziness, the political chaos that's going on in this country, you know, we need to stand back and think about that. People are still, the more that you tell people not to do what they think is right, the more they're going to dig in. Um, And so I think what we really need to do is sit back and think about 
okay, if people are going to dig in and, and, you know, they have this bias, it's a confirmation bias, whatever I believe is right. So whatever you show me, I'm just going to, I'm going to ignore and only believe the information that I want to believe. We need to think about how to deal with that because it's a problem uh, politically. It's a problem uh, technology wise. People keep digging in um, despite the fact that there's just, it's just not going to happen. And there's lots of good technical reasons and evidence to show that driverless cars are not going to happen in the way that people think that they're, that they should. And so I'm not saying that that's not, it's not going to happen in any way, shape or capacity. I think uh, this idea of having what they call traffic jam pilots, where technology can, you can engage technology when, the, when you're in a traffic jam, and it can do everything for you, and you can watch movies, for example, and text on your phone and whatever. Um, I think there are some limited operational domains where some self-driving technology can be very effective. The idea, they, they've done some tests in Europe where you drop your car off at a garage, you get out, it goes into the garage by itself and finds its parking space and parks itself and then comes back out when you're ready. So it has, it's an automated valet service. This is great. This is perfect. You can't get into big trouble in, in that parking garage. And even if there was a crash, it's just no people are in there. It's just cars. You know, right. it's, and it's slow and it's very limited. So I think we need to start realizing that we're not going to get the full, I can call a car on my cell phone and it drives me for three days to Las Vegas, a boom, and I can sleep in the back. That's not happening. Uh, but there are going to be some areas, some places, and some limited protected areas that you will be able to have driverless shuttles. I'm a huge fan of slow-speed driverless shuttles. So, you know, I think it, this is like most things in technology. There's huge promises made. And if you haven't seen the Gartner hype cycle, you should. Um, you're not going to get to the peak of expected inflate, inflated ex- expectations. You're, you just need to realize that you're going to get something that's lesser than that but also um, is going to have a much better chance for scalability and safety. Interesting. So I want to touch on something you mentioned in your answer there. You said that every cargo like aircraft should be a drone. Why isn't that happening now? Uh, so it's not happening because really there's more of a regulatory problem here than anything else. You know, the FAA, rightfully so, is extremely conservative. And they are having difficulties understanding how to test and certify these systems. And we can see what happened with uh, the Boeing 737 MAX. The 737 MAX was baby artificial intelligence, if you could even describe it as such. I mean, it's just baby baby automation. And the FAA could not, you know, they basically let Boeing self-certify because they didn't really have the expertise on board to figure out how to certify and what were the right questions to be asked. And I think that this problem with a lack of regulatory expertise and certification of anything with autonomy embedded in it, this is a huge problem. No agency has it. The government just in general does. If if I could tell Joe Biden one thing, I would say, let me be your AI czar because you don't don't even know uh, the problems that you have. And I sit on a, um, a very high-level board with the DOD, the Defense Innovation Board, and we've seen it firsthand. You know, the military doesn't have any clue how to test and certify systems with autonomy. And if the military can't do it, and they have the, you know, more resources than other agencies do, if the military can't do it, then we're in serious trouble with the FAA and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So um, this is a long answer to say uh, we could have more technology. This is what I think this is what's so crazy. We should have more drone technology, but the regulatory agency is, is too afraid to move. But the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has just let, you know, Tesla go crazy Right. Um, and they have a very different approach of, you know, just it's a free-for-all, do whatever you want. And uh, I don't think that's right either because people are dying unnecessarily in cars with uh, some of these advanced automated devices. So, um, you know, we'll see with the new administration. I, I'm not an advocate necessarily of more regulation or less regulation uh, because I think what we need is less regulation for drones but more regulation for cars. And this is to say we need the right 
levels of regulation. And I'm not sure people really understand the nuance of what that is because AI and how to test AI and and related technologies is still a big question mark for so many people that until we actually get people inside the government who know what they're doing, I think it's just going to be a really rocky road. So President-elect Biden, if you're listening, I have a new member of your cabinet for you. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see about that. I'm I'm really intrigued by sort of the psychological, you know, as you mentioned, as you called it tech therapy earlier. And I, I can imagine that perhaps can be frustra- like really frustrating at times. Like, I just, I'm just curious, like, how is that put into your like role as a professor? I mean, how do you like, it must be like a really unique perspective to sort of have that, have those two roles and how have they sort of informed each other and how has that experience been? Yeah, you know, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I'm a I'm a techie, or at least I used to think I'm an engineer, right? That's I'm a, in the Department of Electrical and uh, Computer Engineering, with mm-hmm. secondaries in mechanical and computer science. So, you know, I'm very much in the tech space. But then what happened uh, when I moved to Duke? Uh, and after I'd been on TV, people actually started to recognize, oh, this girl can go on TV and put words together in front of the camera. Ooh, we should talk to her more. And that just kind of like, then I started getting dragged into all kinds of policy decisions and arguments and doing a lot more discussions on Capitol Hill. Now I've testified twice in front of the Senate Commerce Committee. So that's that's an interesting yeah, uh, experience. And I do do a lot of work on Capitol Hill now, way more than I ever thought I would. And I like it. It's been a learning experience. And one of the things that I have found out that as I'm, I was completely unprepared for this. And it's something that I'm trying to build at Duke is really this idea of engineers and policy. You know, for, for the longest time, policy has been in the realm of the liberal arts and people, engineers, have steered away from it. But I think we need to spend a lot more time on how engineers can engage in the policy realm and what are the tools to do that. And indeed, I think we need to develop more tools because there's a big intersection of engineering and policy. And for the reasons I just said, you know, we need a lot more technique, uh, technical expertise for testing and certification. That's not going to come from liberal arts majors. Sorry, liberal arts majors. Uh, uh, but... Or, you know, and I've, and I've written a couple of proposals to NSF that have not yet been funded that actually try to um, have cohorts where policy undergrads team with engineers so that both of them can actually learn together. Because I, I think what we need are blended majors, more technical majors blending with liberal arts majors. Yeah, and, it's really interesting. Right, it is interesting. And everybody yeah, yeah. who hears these ideas are like, oh, yeah, why wouldn't we want that? We need to, right. we need people to understand, like, to understand the divide. You know, how do you do that? You put other people in other people's shoes. So it's funny, while everyone thinks it's an amazing idea, when it comes to actually funding it, and I have to true, you know, Duke is resistant in some cases, the NSF is resistant. And why is that? And other universities are just as resistant. It's because people get their fiefdoms. Engineers want to maintain control of their world. The policy people, policy, sure. policy and ethics want to maintain the control of their world, right? And so, and indeed, and this is, again, it's just a it's smaller um, glimpse into the societal problems we're having. People do not want to give up control. People want, yeah. to, want to keep their fiefdoms. And it's, and it's funny because... I am a political independent person, but, you know, liberals want to maintain control in their way. Republicans want to maintain control in their way. Uh, And there's little crossover. And I think that that's actually very similar to what we're seeing engineering, uh, policy people. Look, uh, we we need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond and recognize that you know, the intersection of these groups is better than having the polar opposites. So um, that's actually one of my big thing you were asking about my research moving forward, at least from an education um, perspective. I'm really trying hard to move these camps together. Uh, We will see if I'm able to break that funding ceiling. That sounds like it would would solve all the problems that you were just describing, right? Like the like these regulatory bodies who are so filled with policy people, they just don't have the technical expertise to make these uh, like informed decisions, right? And like having an engineer who 
also specialize in policy. Like that seem, seems like it would solve the problem. It does seem, it doesn't, it does <laughs> yeah. seem good, right? And I'm not saying it's going to solve all the problems, but certainly we've got to recognize that, that there's no one set of problems that only requires one set of expert skills, mm-hmm. right? Every problem mm-hmm. today, we are a complex multidisciplinary world. So we've got to start tackling these problems with multidisciplinary people, People, academia, if you go talk to anybody in the senior administration at Duke, here's what they're going to be like. Oh, yeah, we totally support interdisciplinary. <laughs> That's we're all about interdisciplinary. It's like a buzzword. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah but, it's like, and, and it's true in the government, too. But then when you're like, well, why don't you fund it? Well, oh, no. Mm. <laughs> well, we don't, have any, we don't have any money for that. Uh, so we'll get back to you on that. Wow. Yeah, I could ask like a million questions about that. But I, I also want to get into your sort of, Becky and I have had the chance to read some of your comments about driverless cars. And, you know, we could probably ask you a lot of questions on that too. But one question we had is sort of, if you were tasked with designing a driverless car today, like what, what would you be your, like your top three priorities? Well, I would just stop designing a driverless car. That would be the first one, as I wouldn't do it. She would stop designing a car and she would design a drone instead. Right. I wouldn't do it. So I would, for cars, I would design guardian-like technologies. So I, I, until we have major breakthroughs in sensors, which is the electrical side of electrical engineering, which is not my area of expertise, but you know we have a lot of great people working on these, uh, building new kinds of sensors. We just need New, we definitely need new kinds of lidar, light, um, light ranging, and detection. Right, uh-huh. so we we just need new breakthroughs in 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 sensors, which aren't going to come from me; they're going to come from my peers. So until those technology sensor breakthroughs happen, I think we should work harder on developing more collaborative systems inside the car, letting people know that you're drifting out of your lane or, you know, just giving you little nudge controls or uh, like um, automated emergency braking. I mean, this is a technology that's highly proven to stop accidents, yet it's not, it's not yet mandatory on all cars, right? These are the kinds of technologies like, you know, we need to start understanding that humans, our perception systems are unparalleled and technology cannot compete with that. However, we, we get bored and distracted. So we need to figure out what are the technologies that can fill that gap and how can we let the human do what the human does best inside the car, understanding that humans could be distracted and how to give. It's, it's what I call the bumper guard. We just need to build technologies that are bumper guards on cars to keep people from running into each other until those new sensors can come along. I am a full fan of driverless cars. I, I want them to be there. I, I have a teenager, right? She's 13. I don't want her to drive ever. She, it's not scary to me to think about her behind the wheel of a car. So personally, if I could make a driverless car, car in three years and my 13-year-old would never drive, I think that would be best. However, it's not going to happen. So until then, I'm going to try to develop technologies that spy on her to make sure that they rats her out whenever she does anything wrong. <laughs> and also that protects her in the car. She's going to, it's like she's going to be in a car with a, she's definitely going to be in a Volvo or something like that with airbags all around her and that calls me when she's speeding. So um, yeah, those are the kind of technologies I'm all for. Absolutely. I want to ask you a question about the direction you think Silicon Valley is headed kind of touched on it with like how it's kind of this like boys club that is the same as what your experience is like in the military. What do you think the future of that is? Well, I don't mean to bash Silicon Valley too much. Indeed, um, 75% of all my former students, both at MIT and Duke, are there. And indeed, I, that's a, I, the pandemic's been terrible because I'll go out there a couple times a year and then I'll take all my former students out to dinner. And they, and they work at all the big companies that you, that you know. And I get all the inside scoop. It's so great <laughs> listening to all the inside gossip. Um, and it's males and females are out there working. So, um, you know, I, I think Silicon Valley is great. The energy it's true. The energy out there is palpable and it's exciting and it's a crazy place for young people to live um, when you're single. Then what happens is they start bailing once kids start showing up. Uh, you know, the, 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 the later thing, you know, the maturing in life makes Silicon Valley harder. But when you're young, you know, I can see why they, all my students go to, you know, the sirens on the shore. I think that what the problem with that is is that it, it can be a very hard, rough culture. And a lot of my a lot of my 
female students will, or postdocs will, you know, will bounce around um, until they find the right company that has the right culture. So, you know, I think that that there is still a lot to be done with the culture, uh, but as an eth- an ethos. Uh, I think it's great, you know, the idea that there, and the excitement, and I don't think there's any one direction for Silicon Valley. I think that's the what's really great. You know, I have students working in cars, construction, you know, the traditional Google and Facebook kind of back-end development, you know, and of course, Seattle is another place with Amazon, and then I would say to round out the top three would be Austin. Uh, you know, I think I think that there's been a lot of those are very exciting melting pots of ideas, and so I, I don't really want to change them as much as I want them to understand that these are really great places for percolating creative thought. But you need creative thought from not just white and Asian men. And I'm sorry right. if the white and Asian men who are listening to this are mad, but that's really those are the, that that's who the dominant people are in Silicon Valley. And we see sure. products coming out all the time that if a woman or a person of color had been on that development team, that technology wouldn't have come out that particular way. And so I think, you know, kind of in the same way, I think driverless cars. You know, you really need to rethink that because I think a lot of guys, and I'm sorry guys out there, but you guys do love technology. Like, oh yeah, drive this car. Wouldn't that be great? That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah, we totally want to do that. And I think women are like, well, you know, maybe, maybe we should be just protect the driver a little bit more. Like, uh, you know, women aren't just like, there's a reason women are not in jackass movies, right? Because, you know, there's a, women just don't have those, you know, we're just not that kind of breed. Uh, and I think you need both kinds, right? I think you need women and men, people who are white and people of color. Uh, I, I like to have my lab, my labs always, whatever the, the makeup of my lab looks very, it's very international. It's very multicultural. Uh, I wish Silicon Valley would would do that too, because then you would really start to see. I, I really think fantastic, even better products. And so, Silicon Valley is great, and I think the more multi, multicultural we can make it, I think it will be even better. Yeah, and along those lines, what advice? You know, sort of um, wrapping up with the last couple of questions. What advice would you give? You know, based on the the students that you've mentored, what advice would you give? an undergraduate at Duke or even a graduate student about who's sort of looking to go into tech? Well, I'm going to tell everyone to go work for a few years. I think it's a good idea. Go through the interview process. The, you know, the Google interview is hard. Yeah. So, uh, but it's good and it's good for you to see that. I, I, I think for 90% of everyone, they just need to go and live it, right? Mm-hmm. Go to Silicon Valley, go to Austin, go to Seattle, go to Boston. Um, I still have a lot of students in Boston. You know, go be part of those cultures. I think you cannot understand it until you've actually been there and lived it. Uh, there are 10% of you, if you lay awake at night thinking about proofs and theorems and you, and you just love to write, and do you think about proofs and theorems or how to formalize your ideas into a, you know, uh, these formalisms that you can express? Then maybe if that's your thinking, maybe you need to go to grad school right away. Right. And the rest of you can go to grad school later because what's going to happen is what, what happens is the rest of everyone goes, have the lived experience. And then for 90% of people, they're like, they need to find out what's going on out there. First of all, to find out what they really are passionate about. And secondly, to realize, wow, there are a lot of problems out here that need to be solved. And that's why when you come back to grad school, it's so much more uh, effective for you because then you recognize that there are specific things, actions, processes, technologies that are needed in the real world. And those are great motivations for you to go back to school. Amazing. Yeah. On that same note, I guess, if you were coming back back in time and you were an undergrad at Duke right now, what would you be interested in? What kind of labs would you join? What kind of things would you take part in? 
Well, I certainly would be part of my lab, the Humans and Autonomy <laughs> Lab. Of course, I'm going to say that, right? Oh, I, and I have a ton of undergraduates that work in my lab, right? Um, especially before COVID. You know, at any given time, you could have had 10 to 20 undergraduates. Sometimes I have so many undergraduates running around. It's just like a pack, a little pack of wild wolves. <laughs> and, you know, and we do fun things like take Teslas out to tracks and test them. So who wouldn't want to be a part of that, right? Yeah, yeah no, so. No. Yeah, right, exactly. It's very exciting. But I, I think joining any lab, first of all, even if you don't stay in it for more than a summer or a semester, joining a lab and seeing what research, real research looks like is very eye-opening. So I think I would tell anybody, you know, my own daughter going away to college, you got to be part of that experience to understand that experience. Now, what would I want to study right now? Oh, I don't know. I'm still, I'm, obviously, I'm very interdisciplinary. I would part part of, I would be in science and society and ECE and computer science. I mean, and that, that's basically what I do now. Um, sure. So, you know, I, I, I think I wouldn't be that different um, than I was. I was a math major in, at the Naval Academy, uh, you know, that, that very close to um, engineering, obviously. So, and we just didn't have cool things back in the 80s. School so much, so, school was so boring. Like, you guys are having a much better, I'm so jealous of people going to college now. It's way, way, way better than when I went to college. I think that, I think the problem is you have too much pulling from you. And this is what I find. Undergraduates need to, okay, whatever activities you're participating in, you need to cut it by half and really focus on those. Yeah, right. Wow, okay, this is great. So there's two questions we like to ask all of our guests at the very end of our podcast. One of them is what your coffee or tea habits are. Do you drink coffee? And if so... I drink both. You drink both? Okay. I'm ambidextrous. Like, ambidextrous. Like multiple times a day, you... Uh, like I, I drink person? coffee in the morning and tea in the afternoon. Very balanced, as all things should be. And the other one is, what's the last book you read or what's a book that you would recommend to our listeners? <sighs> Gosh. One of the problems I have is that I'm reading all the time, but it's generally terrible student papers that I'm having to edit, so then I want to kill myself after it's all over. Uh, I think I read Gone Girl uh, because there was so much crazy... Uh, you know, all the discussions about Gone Girl. Um, yeah. And I, the funny thing is I'm not really a fiction reader, but I did find it very interesting. So um, that's a very old book. I, I, I may have read something more recent, but that's a funny thing. It's like, I can't really remember. Oh, I read Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, oh, be, yeah. yeah. Because I also have a very similar background, right? I come from a small town in Tennessee. Uh, I was not on a plane until I went to the Naval Academy. Uh, and so, you know, the funny thing about Hillbilly Elegy is, you know, I, I come from the wrong side of the tracks. And so uh, I'm not sure he was portraying it in, in as um, accurate of a way as he could have been. But then again, maybe I'm just jealous because now he has a movie. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just mad that I didn't write Hillbilly Elegy, maybe. Awesome. Wow. Thank you so much for giving us your time. This was a great conversation. Um, we really appreciate it. You're welcome. Wow, that was definitely one of the most interesting conversations I've had with a professor at Duke ever. Yeah, I completely agree. That was that was awesome. Yeah, it was sort of crazy to hear about the kind of things that she had to deal with in the Navy. I mean, not you know, not just like the the sort of demeaning social situations, but also sort of the fact that other pilots were tampering with her flight controls. I mean, that's sort of insane. Yeah, no, you can't, no one can see it because it's like a podcast, obviously, but my mouth was like wide open the whole time she was like <laughs> describing that. I was in absolute shock. Yeah, and you know, it sounds like, uh, you know, she spoke a lot about her lived experience and, you know, in terms of recommending that um, to other sort of aspiring engineers at Duke. And I think that's, it's really clear from speaking to her that that plays a really large role in how she carries herself and sort of the, uh, things and things she does today. Yeah, for sure. It was really great to hear her perspective as someone who's been um, both in the military and kind of industry and academic worlds. Um, a lot of times when you speak to professors, they give you a perspective that's from like from their lived experience, which is in the world of academia. So it was, it was cool to hear her perspective as someone who's kind of transversed uh, several different um, professional environments. Yeah, and I think that really translates to her idea, which I thought was really cool of 
having like an interdisciplinary opportunity for engineering students. You know, like if you wanted to study, like take some engineering classes and take some like public policy classes, especially since those areas are so strong for Duke already. Yeah, no, I, I was absolutely, I absolutely love that whole idea that she brought up. I never had really thought about that, but it makes so much sense. I would have loved to take some public policy classes um, and kind of interwoven that into my engineering education. Yeah, I know. I think it's also interesting because that sort of translates to review as well. Like, you know, as as sort of youngsters in engineering, we youngsters, you know, everyone I, I know it. is like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're uh, we're all of us are like super excited. Everyone I know is super excited about like Tesla and driverless cars and things like that. But it's it was super interesting to get her take. You know, she definitely has a more conservative view on these types of things. And obviously, as a you know, her experience, I wouldn't say conservative. I think it was more like of a nuanced opinion. Like she has very. I think it was a nuanced view on how, um, wh- what areas we need to be stricter in regulation and what areas we um, need to let the companies have more uh, freedom. That's definitely true. I, I guess I would call it like much more informed. You know, like I think. Yeah. Um, right. I think most engineers um, today, sort of just in college, aren't super super informed about policy in the way that perhaps we should be. You know, it's definitely something to sort of keep in mind and look at um, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know Rowan and I definitely enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts at After Office Hours and on Instagram at After Double Underscore Office Hours. See you guys next time.